are listening to Brave New Words. My name is Ed Fortune, and I'm here with... I'm Ross. I'm Mikey. I'm Adam. Hello. I'm a new voice to the show. You are indeed. He's very special. We are currently hiding somewhere in the between the Booknook and a place called Ferret Towers uh, today on today's show. Uh, we are back. Hello, everybody. Uh, if you've not listened to the show before, you are in for a surprise, because we're not always this good. But before we start, let's do a jingle. A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away, there were still stories waiting to be told. Force Majeure is an actual play Star Wars podcast, following groups of emerging Force sensitives trying to survive the worst the Outer Rim can throw at them. So if you like action, adventure, thrilling yarns and good tea, you might enjoy Force Majeure. Find us on Twitter at Force Majeure Pod or online at forcemajeurepod.com or wherever you find your podcasts. Lovely jingle. That was a lovely jingle. That was a lovely jingle. So, on today's show, uh, we're going to do books because that's the format of the show. Wait, uh, really? What? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the show has a format. It does. I mean, I've listened to a few, but, but <laughs> this, this takes me by surprise. We, we have a format. Ed's about to talk about a book. Everybody else knows the drill. So, because because you always try and stop me from reviewing bricks, I've got loads of them, so I can throw them at you as I keep going. So what we're going to do is we're going to talk about Warhammer, so some of you have already turned the tape off already. We're going to talk about Warhammer 40,000 specifically, which, for those who don't know what Warhammer is at all, uh, Warhammer is a massive franchise that was invented to sell toy soldiers to boys. And girls, but mostly boys at the time, because mm-hmm. it was the 80s, and they didn't understand marketing. And then some genius went, we could double our marketing by appealing to like girls as well. That was incredible. So, yes. Um, so, talking about marketing and the things that they've done recently. Um, mm-hmm. The t- first two weeks, we're going to go into the Buried Dagger, which is the Horse Heresy, which is a big series, but we're going to a big series and a big deal for that particular franchise. Um, I haven't even got around to actually explaining what Warhammer, Warhammer 40,000 are. No, either. It's a big franchise to sell toys. Yes, it is. But essentially, Warhammer Warhammer Fantasy was Lord of the Rings, but really dark. Like, Lord Lord of the Rings, but as fed to a grumpy teenager who liked Michael Moorcock and Call of Cthulhu, but Mm -hmm. also wanted elves and dwarves. And originally it had uh, dwarves with with Yorkshire accents and elves with slightly English accents and really bad puns about European place names and mild xenophobia. The elves now have Scottish accents. If you if you play Vermintown. They, they they're do. All, they're all Scottish. Yes, and then very recently what they did with their fantasy thing is the, their fantasy franchise is they went, oh my God, they'd be creating this in the 80s and it's quite problematic in a number of different and complicated ways which we're not going to go into in the show. Um, we might interview some designers at some point and have a word mm-hmm. with them. And, but essentially the old fantasy stuff had had been going on for 20 years. Yes. Had its own mythology was impenetrable for a lot of people, mm-hmm. so they blew it up. Yeah, and yeah. its new mythology is impenetrable too. <laughs> so it's, it's not that new now, though. There's a lot, a lot of it already. It's been there for how many years? Three, yeah. four years yeah. now. Yeah, yeah and, they've had, and they've had to do quite a lot of work on the system because I think when Age of Sigmar first came out, from my friends that still played it, um, the, it wasn't that balanced. There was lots of problems, and you mostly just grabbed the models that you thought were pretty and threw them at each other until someone cried. That's how I play all games. Yeah, I'm but just... I mean, <laughs> yeah, so... this actually had rules saying you know the player with the longest beard gets to do a thing. 
Which yes, yes. But oh, wait. Yeah. <laughs> so all of that was made. There's no be... beard off in the in the in the book. Not the book. So so when they did that, they they tried they, they were trying to gone totally tangent. But when they did that, they were trying to you know, like elicit fun. So they were trying to bring they were trying to spark joy back into the Hobbit. So the mm-hmm. the reason they had the whole longest beard who can roar like an orc the most. Yeah. It's like it said at the very top. These aren't serious rules, but gamers who are in their forties were like, these are the new rules, and look at them. I have to roar like an orc. And it's like. It's not for you. It says at the top, this is for giggles. Yeah. Um, because they originally, when they originally launched the, the whole stuff, they hadn't, you're right, they hadn't launched everything together. But they said, just throw some models on the table and have fun with us and tell us how it goes. Um, and then they slowly, surely released War Scrolls and actually, there was actually a system in place. You are our beta testers. That will be 125 pounds plus. Well, no, there were, there were four, there's four modes of play. So all of the games basically now have different modes of play. One of the modes of play is four models on a table and just roll some dice and get drunk. Or drink tea or whatever, depending on your age. Have fun. Um, and then there's a tournament one, which is very fair because it's a tournament and people def- definitely want to win a tournament. And then there's matched play, which is more balanced. And so, Anyway, that's not the... the You've not explained what Warhammer is yet. You know that, right? Yeah, yeah. They reset the, the fantasy setting. And essentially, some of the heroes from the old world became gods in this new world, and it's uh, it's portal fantasy. So you've got lots of little portals representing different things. You've got different gods. So you've got a god called Sigmar, who's like all about lightning and ruling, and you've got a deaf god called Nagash, who just wants to rule all the souls and own all the souls. Age of Sigmar is essentially portal fantasy with kind of gothic kind of big gods and ancient gods and weirdness going on and everything worked in the kind of TikTok law versus all the sort of world mm-hmm. way and then it all fell apart very quickly yeah and now it uh, so for example the um the the, the cigarettes the, the kind of these big kind of shining lightning lights that appear they can't die they get resurrected every time but every time they get resurrected they lose a little bit of their personality and a little bit of their humanity and they become more like mechanical killing machines so they're meant to be the good guys, but they kind of aren't, yeah. um, and so on. And it's full of these little kind of grim, dark twiddles. And that's their fantasy setting, yeah. which we're mostly not talking about in this show. Seemingly <laughs> that's true. Yeah. Uh, and their um, space setting, their yeah. science fiction setting, is all of that, but in space. He said, as various people get very angry at me. <laughs> I mean, basically. I'm, I'm just going to write you a letter now. <laughs> Carry on. I'll just... I'm going to write like, Dear letter. Mr. Fortune. Dear so called Mr. Fortune. <laughs> yeah. Why oh, why oh, it smells yo yo. <laughs> so carry on. Yeah, it basically is. I mean, except with even more grim, dark, dark grim. And um, definitely not Space Nazis as the good guys. No. Definitely, definitely not. They've yeah, made that they're, very, they're very clear. Yeah. And they are only wearing skulls on their hats to represent pure Aryan skull shape. Ah, no, they're... Right, okay. So, I, the, I, there is a reason why they're wearing skulls everywhere. That's it's because otherwise it's a rat's anus. That's Thank that. you, Mitchell and Webb. That, that's, what a god, that's what their god looks like. The face of their god, the emperor, who sits on the golden throne, who is a corpse, who is dead, who, who died during the heresy, is a grinning skull. I... So their face of their god is everywhere. That's a that's a that's a retcon, but I like it. I thought the original reason was because where the the Imperium of Man is so big uh, and so varied, but when you you kind of so there's a whole mirror of, of of skin tones and builds and, and that sort of thing. But the one thing that is universal is the shape of the human skull. It's what sets them aside from all the different Xeno races, even the Necrons that are basically just you know skeletons, skeletons, yeah, robot skeletons. 
their, their skull shape is still different enough that it's not uh, a, a human skull and therefore that's why they have skulls everywhere that and they're morbid it's just a massive goth empire it's it's meant to be a gothic empire so the the slightly more or less serious description of Warhammer 40k as a setting is it's grim dark dark they can easily make the claim to have invented the term grimdark because the opening line of every single book is in the grim darkness of the 40th, 40th millennium there is only war and the very doesn't anyone want to have a stab at the short version of the the history of the setting or should i go for it <laughs> uh, no no you do it <laughs> humanity spread across the stars and then it all went wrong yeah, humanity spread across the stars. It all went wrong. We we plugged in our space version of Alexa. It decided it didn't didn't like us. Uh, it all fell apart, and we had several. We made several mistakes as uh, as humanity. One of them was the idea that we thought we could get really quickly from one end of the other in, in space, space yeah. by by taking a shortcut through hell. The event horizon technique. The, the event horizon. We, we opened a portal to hell. Through, flew all big big spaceships through. Big spaceships had big fields that that repelled hell, so that's not going to upset anyone. No, no, and those 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 fields are never going to fail. Well, well, more importantly, you're sitting there in your hellscape, having you know your your hell tea, uh, and watching watching the hell cricket, and then yeah. this big screaming seven four seven jet engine flies across, disrupting everything, knocking yeah. everything out of the way. That's not going to annoy you at all, is it? No, no, they're renowned for how reasonable they are in hell. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So, so that they built an entire empire on upsetting hell, and then it all fell apart uh, for various reasons, including aliens who are elves in this because it's fantasy in space. Mm-hmm. Although no space dwarves anymore. Oh yeah, I remember the squats. Solidarity for my brethren. Oh no, they are sp- space dwarves. They they just ignore them. No, they got eaten by the tyranids. No, nope. they, they got no, nope. did... no, nope. never true. It was a joke by one of the designers. They'd never officially canon. I had a squat army. Yes, but the squats that I bought from Games Workshop. The squats are still a thing. They just don't. That if so, they've only just come back. No, they they've never gone away. They've just never been supported since the second edition. I thought they retconned it away by having them all eaten by Tyranids in the first no, Tyranid incursion. No, no. has been crying over the squats for a quite yeah, a while. Awesome. And this is this is a revelation for him. The, As the, an the, artillery the, static player, you couldn't get better than squat. Stand back, kill everything with fire from a distance, go home. There's Lap not salty tears of Eldar players. The, the, there's not a single book that says that they were removed by the Tyranids. Jervis Johnson said that on a forum on the internet, and then everyone was everyone took this fake news. But that was before there were books about things. So what what other option do we have? Jervis Johnson wouldn't lie to us. He's the voice of Games Workshop. Anyway, so the in third edition they mentioned very briefly as a race and then they're in the other they're the race of abhuman. So so to explain to people who are entirely lost at this point. The game has currently on it something like its ninth edition. Squats were so they, they transpose fantasy. So we had space dwarves who were squats. In the original edition they had they had their own army and models and then they realised they couldn't write any stories about them, with the exception of Ian Watson, who did write them into some of his stories and had them pooing a lot. I love Ian Watson. Uh uh, is that because you're fond of dwarf poo? I'm fond of Ian Watson because he's absolutely bonkers. Um, for those of you who don't know, Ian Watson is an award-winning, exceptionally well-respected science fiction author who, when they first launched the Warhammer 40,000 kind of book series, they got in touch with as many 
writers as they could find. And they were like, Ian Watson's a British science fiction award-winning author. He'll write us something fun. And he did. But they didn't read much of his back catalogue at the time because it tell, tends to involve orgies and pooing and Nazis and falling over and drugs. And... Yeah. So, so that's like the core themes of forty k. <laughs> so it is what I play. Anyway. You'll fit in well here. So, so I, I've been spoiled by playing too much Rogue Trader. So in the original, the original Space Marine novel, I think it's I think one they're climbing a ladder and one of them farts and there's a chain of because they've got like a special yes. organ inside the Space Marine to like a genetically enhanced uh, for a digestive system. So they were playing with that. But um, we've gone off topic massively. Anyway, what have I put so, No, we haven't. We got back onto topic. We talked about books. <laughs> <laughs> this what? is a book show. Wait a minute. <laughs> Warhammer 40,000 is essentially it's a big, grand, sweeping place where humanity has fallen apart and it's gone into a kind of space dark ages. Uh, they used to have a godlike being who ran their empire called the Emperor. He has been dead for 10,000 years, but they refuse to accept that he's dead and he's on like space life support. And it's this big, suiting space gothic setting, and there's space elves, and there's space dwarves, no matter what Adam might say, uh, and... Space orcs. Space, uh, space orcs, as written, though, in the, the setting, are your classic Von Neumann machine-style uh, rampaging horde. They're an ancient uh, war weapon left over by a long-dead civilization that are just designed to keep going and keep going and keep going. So they keep trying to conquer things and conquer each other. But they're essentially orcs in space. And space skeletons called Necrons. And Tyranids, which is starship troopers, alien bugs, and so on. And Chaos, which are the forces of hell who've decided to take over. So, let's, let's actually try and get to the books. Um... So the first thing that Games Workshop did recently is they realised that their appeal is getting older. Yeah. Their, their audience is getting older and there's loads of guys in their 40s and girls in their 40s who have kids. Yeah. And they get their kids into their hobbies sometimes, but a lot of their hobby is inaccessible because we've just spent a, t- a lot of time talking about... Dwarf you know, poo. Dwarf poo. Yeah. So they've released two... They've, by the time you listen to this show, they'll have released these two books. Uh, Warhammer Adventures is the series. Um, and I have in my hands Warhammer Adventures... City of Livestone, which is for Age of Sigmar by Tom Huddleston, and Warhammer Adventures Attack of the Necron um, by, by uh, Kevin Scott. Scott. Thank you. Um, and so when these were released, idiots on the internet, because there's always idiots on the internet, were like, oh, that's not how it should work, because it's going gonna, it's gonna to be... I don't understand it, it's for children. It's like, you're not a child, that's fine. You're not supposed to... I the, uh, this isn't for you. You don't have to be the audience for everything. Yeah. Just think about Georgia. It's not for you. Get over it. Trevor, Trevor, it's not always about you, Trevor. Uh, uh, however, ironically, this bit is about you, Trevor. Yeah. But every, everything else is... <laughs> so, um, I've read them. Uh, I really like them. Um, I like Attack of the, the Necrons more than I like the City of Lifestone. Uh, and that's not just because I like 40k more. It's because it's, it's more fun. Um, yeah. Adam's just discovered that these are arcs and therefore are things like <laughs> placeholder for image yes. of, of child being eaten by goblin um, that doesn't actually happen but it kind of does yeah. um, I'm just looking at the because I'm judging a book by its cover naturally I'm just looking at the cover of these two books and I would watch this animated cartoon oh absolutely yeah that is that is just the, the front cover of Attack of the Necron has um, three kids a rogue trader group 
uh, with a, um, a navigator, a Seneschal and the captain, and they really look like they're Saturday morning TV cartoon style with a Necron on the top there. And so the way it opens yes. what is um, the, the, the young girl on the front cover, uh, the spyglass, mm-hmm. uh, she's a xenoarchaeologist. Oh, right. She's the family of a family of xenoarchaeologists mm-hmm. from the um, from the school room, which is yes. the, their big academic, because it's meant to be a big imperial gothic kind of space room and empire. So obviously you have explorers and school room. So yeah. And what it does very, very early on is it basically goes, she's very privileged, it explains to you the luxury of her life mm-hmm. in about two lines. Um, and her not so much friend but also with them is a chap called I believe he's called Mekdi I should have really written some notes um, <laughs> I was saying nothing <laughs> but yes uh, chap with them the chap with them is from Mars and yes. he's described as a Martian and in this setting that means Mekki in fact his name is Mekki Mekki the Martian and he is Partially mechanical. He's only young, so he hasn't been fully mechanized. He's only like ten, and he's he's quiet and taciturn because mostly he likes talking to machines. And very early on, a so like a flying robot skull appears because that's a thing in the setting, and it just goes. There's no artificial intelligences in this it, it, amongst the Imperium of Man because we don't trust artificial intelligences, and it leaves it at that. It doesn't go. There's a living brain inside there. That's screaming at the the electronic because you don't need to. It's a it's a book yeah. aimed at ten year olds. You don't need to explain later when you get to like you know when you read the rest of the books. You go, oh, that's really dark. Um, so there's quite an early scene where they get attacked by hive gangers. Here again, I think from the saying, um, and they just throw drones at them. So the violence isn't massive. Um, there is because it's a Warhammer setting, Warhammer forty thousand book. Space Marines turn up. They're ultramarines. They're in it for about ten seconds. It's again. It's not a spoiler because it's on the, the cover. Cover and the advertising. Space yeah, Marines. Space Marine turns up and goes, "Hi, I'm available in other franchises." And then <laughs> leaves. Buy a lot of places and toys. <laughs> uh, and and that's fine. It, it's also used as a setup for something else. Yes. And uh, it does it does everything right. All the kids bicker, argue. Don't trust each other. Certainly, don't trust aliens. And there's a great moment where uh, they encounter a space monkey. There's Jacaro. There's a Jacaro, yeah. super uh, intelligent alien ape, uh, which is described as not described as a uh, is described as an, a long forgotten artifact from humanity's past, rather than an alien ape. Um, and it's great because they immediately insult him. The super intelligent alien ape who can help them. One of the characters is immediately rude. So it's absolutely a road trader role playing party. Then. It's exactly it's yeah. absolutely Warhammer forty k. <laughs> but I would be a hundred percent comfortable with giving this to a ne- beloved nephew or niece. So what age range are we looking at then? Uh, a ten so up. A ten up. Ten up. A ten up, and obviously most pa- uh, many parents in my experience will age that back to eight. Yeah, and they are, they they know they they know that parents do that. So, yeah. oh, I've just found the ape insulting section. But, um, yeah, it, they're horrible to them. Yeah, they it? are. But the thing is, the ape is like, I know, I understand humans. Humans are like this. They're always horrible. Uh, Lifestone, which is the Age of Sigma one. Which, again, I would absolutely watch the hell out of the animated show that this this is based on. It's got lightning on the front. It's got lightning on the front. It's got three of the five children, presumably named on the back. Um, yeah, it looks really cool. So, yeah. 
I'm having like mysterious cities of gold flashbacks with a lot more Warhammer and Dragon Prince. You know, yeah, new, yeah, 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 that sort of thing. And again, it fits Age of Sigmar. It does the same thing as Age of Nick ones does. Where um, oh, here's a here's a Sigmar. Turns up, hi kids, buy my product, and then vanishes again. Um, the The plot of that is basically um, she has a symbol of one of the there's like kind of runic portals um, across across from the setting. So they have various kind of symbols on them, and she's born with a with a birthmark that is a symbol of one of the portals. So therefore, she's special. But the opening scene is her mum in a camp from one of the bad guy sides, so one of the chaos kind of champions, and she's essentially a slave. And her mum is like, "Don't die in this this extermination camp. Run, run for your life," sort of thing. And that's our opening scene. So it's pretty dark. It's a pretty dark opening. But kids' books are quite grim. Mm. Um, they've they've done, they've gotten everything right. I really the thing I like in that Lifestone is the fact that there is an older character who turns up and goes, "Hi, I will be your mentor for a lot of this, but for plot reasons, quite clearly, I will be incapacitated for most of it." <laughs> he's like, he's a witch hunter. The witch hunter turns up and goes, "Hi, and clearly, I have lots of baggage, and therefore will not be able to help you for critical points." Bye. Uh, and then the kids argue and bicker because that's what you want. Um, is it Harry Potter? No. Um, is it going to be as significant to some kids' lives as Harry Potter is? Probably. Uh, I would say there'll, there'll be like the four kids in your classroom dressed as Harry Potter, and there'll be one dressed as a space marine, I can guarantee it. There's going to be a crossover. I'm just going on yeah. to the internet. <laughs> <laughs> the, 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 the Hogwarts chapter of the, the space marines. Um, shall we shall we jump into other books or is someone going to stop me? Um, oh, your show. Um, <laughs> so who, who are these for? What, who, who is who is the the target audience? The tar- what age are we on? The tar- target audience is essentially eight to twelve, uh, and that kind of rough, you know, getting into getting into senior school, leaving so junior school. Th- these books, you'd say, is the transition from Enid Blyton to Sam Sykes and Joe Abercrombie. Yeah, uh, almost, yeah. I, I'd actually <laughs> go with that. I, it, it's the, the kind of books that you kind of feed to someone. Uh, we have, in fact, found a picture that says a custodian artist. Harry Potter <laughs> in a uh, Space Marine uniform. Yeah. <laughs> There's everything on the internet. Don't go looking for it. But I think the, the, they've already announced the other two. They've got David Tennant and Billy Piper to do the audiobook versions. Cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. They they are going full in on this. And to be honest, I, I, I have no problem with that. They, they are quite clearly going to try and sell paint sets um, mm-hmm. where you get to clip together your own model, push together your own model, and then paint your own model, realise that you can't really paint, and then just play the game instead, which is fine. Um, he said that, that that's how I got into it. So that sounds very familiar. It's funny actually. I was um, the, they had an interview with one of their their big studio designers who paints the the gorgeous models, mm-hmm. and he was like, "I don't really play the game much. And I've discovered that very few people either people either really like painting the models or really like playing the games, but most people don't have the time to do both. Yeah, which is which is true. And I'd yeah. rather be rolling dice with friends or reading books." Than I would be painting models. Though I will sit and watch TV shows and paint models mm-hmm. and make a massive mess at the front room. But, um, yeah. yeah. I think it's a really good thing. I think it's a really, we've talked about it briefly before on the show, but now that they're out, by the time you listen to the show, um, 
No, I think it's marvellous. Uh, just uh, good on Black Library, who are Games Workshop's branch, uh, for doing this. Yeah, definitely. Um, so, very briefly, because we are, are way into the, the depth of the show, I'm going to very briefly talk about another thing they're doing, which is the comic books. Now, they've tried comic books for years. They did yeah. a, a, about a decade ago, hang on, I have to adjust for being old, 15, 20 years ago. <laughs> yeah, the they, they did a thing called Warhammer Monthly, which was an attempt to do Warhammer comic books. Yeah. And kind of, like, shuffle into 2000AD's market, sort of. And it, I, don't, I, I don't think they were patient enough with it. I think yeah. if they'd carried on with it, it would have been fine. But they weren't patient enough with the... Well, that, that's always been a bit of a failing with Games Workshop, though, isn't it? They, they, with a lot of their stuff, they wanted to see the quick turn around the quick profit and, and weren't always ready to invest in that the long game because you found that with, with like Blood Bowl um, and then the re-release of Blood Bowl that was just and, and other games like Warhammer Quest and it's like no just just stick it out people if, if you build it and price it reasonably people will come I mean they're starting to do that more now which is why we've got this revival of stuff coming yeah. out and they've sort there's been a change of management as well yeah. but they're starting to do that more and kind of be more reasonable. But they did do a comic book back in the nineties. It was great. Had they hung on another couple of years, um, a comic book revival was just round the corner, which saved two thousand AD. Two thousand AD, like they launched a comic book while two thousand AD was having a declining market, and then suddenly there was an uptick in co- in interest in comic books. And had they stuck to that model, they'd have been fine. But they're back now, and rather than doing it themselves, they've sensibly gotten in touch with Titan Books. Hi, our friends at Titan Books, we like you. Hello. Uh, Titan Comic Books, uh, who do franchise stuff. Yeah. They do loads of franchise... They do, they do Doctor Who comic books and all sorts of things. Um, there, were, there was a wave with Boom Studios about a decade or so ago as well. Yeah, the Boom um, Studios had a licence for a short while, and it was all right. Yeah, they, well, they did some Warner ones, and Warner one, one 40,000 ones, which were... So, so. The, the ones I really liked that they did was the Blood Bowl series, because um, Matt Forbeck did about four Blood Bowl novels, for, which were the only Blood Bowl stories for a long time. They've recently started reviving that uh, since the latest edition. But Matt Forbeck also went back and did five issues of a comic. I think they've probably had a... I think Nick Kahn's done a comic since then of Blood Bowl. But it was the most... With the, with, with the stories, okay, so here's the pro, and you, you're going through it, and you... Okay, well, this is... This is all the stuff that's going on in the story. With the comics, suddenly you get all the background things going on in the background uh, of all the mania of Blood Bowl, of all the you know, punching people into the dirt. and so, so, so the comics took off quite well, I think. So the name of the comic book that I've brought in is simply called Death Watch. And the idea of Death Watch is, so in the Warhammer 40,000 setting, we have mm. lots of different types of creatures called Space Marines, we're human beings... Where they've they've pulled out half their organs, replaced them with cool robot parts or genetically modified bits, shoved them in a suit of incredibly powerful robot power armor, and then gone right, go and kill demons and orcs and alien monsters on behalf of humanity. And they're they're basically meant to be fighting monks. And there's lots of different flavors, and there's lots of different types. And you get Viking ones, and you get well, you get space barbarian ones, and you get. Uh, Greek Roman, Greco Roman ones, and you get like goths, goth. several flavors of goth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because yeah. blood angels and dark angels, both yeah, vampires, yeah. vampires, space wolves being werewolf, Viking, barbarians. Um, yeah, yeah. essentially being other goths. And, yeah. yeah, essentially take five or six random adjectives of cool shit, mm. jumble those together, 
Uh, right, we can do that now. Pick a word. Uh, horse. Horse. Riding. Badger. Squadron. Monks. <laughs> uh, horse riding. I, I, I can see that. No, that, yeah. that's almost the white skull. Scars. Yeah, black and a, white. Sort of, yeah. Which works. is a faction. In, you yeah. see? There we go. Um, that was a terrible example, but yes. Um, ninja. Osteopaths. Tigers. I'm not joining in on this one, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Again, probably probably a faction somewhere. Yeah. Um, so the point of Death Watch is that there's lots and lots of different flavours of Space Marine and then they all team together to fight aliens in a special elite squad called the Death Watch, uh, which are a bunch of people who kill things rather than have human problems. Um, yeah. And they always get called on to, to do to, to take on horrible, this yeah. uh, horrible, horrible threats to humanity. Um, sometimes even punching gods and that sort of thing. Yeah. So, this is the graphic novel uh, which uh, contains Death Watch 1 to 4 in it and it's beautiful, it really is the shadow work is really good it's very thick lined uh, art it reminds me um, of kind of like the art from like, the 90s sort of thing in comics with, with the very thick lines and deep shadows but it's really pretty can they draw feet? they don't need to, they're space marines Good form. Uh, and it's written by Aaron Dembski-Bowden yeah. And Aaron Dembski Bowden is a old hand in writing Warhammer 40,000 books. Yeah. Mm. And I think the best way to describe his writing style is he writes military sci fi where you can hear the thud of mechanical boots and the clatter of, me- of space machine guns. Mm. He, he's very graphic in his design uh, and his writing style. And I have to say, I'm always gripped. I can never fail to be gripped by Aaron Dembski Bowden because he writes like. It gets overused. People say cinematic all the time, but he not only writes cinematic, but he also writes classic, classic British sci-fi style. So there's an awful lot of dialogue that's snide and sarcastic and clever and witty and and spot on. And he writes those characters appropriately, and and always oh, just always it just feels very British sci-fi. Yeah, but also very um, you can almost smell the oil and chrome and blood. Mm. Yeah, he's known for. Sort of very precise word choices, very evocative sentence structure, and yeah, people who are cynical against each other and who will snipe at their sniping conversations against other people. Yeah. I can hear their voices while I'm reading this. And it's ideally suited for comic book stuff where you need where every word counts. Yeah, his imperial fleet stuff is absolutely amazing. Um, where you just have characters who are um, they've got. You know, human beings, normal everyday human being, not augmented, not special in any way, just very well trained, uh, piloting what is essentially a giant galleon in space. It's got broadsides. There's no logical reason why you would have cannon on a spaceship, but it's Warhammer 40k and it's good in skulls, so no one cares. Ah, uh, it's also because in Warhammer 40k ships can't go up or down because that's where the de- <laughs> yeah, that's where the demons lie. They all stay on the same elliptical plane. Oh, that's so that's a- why you need a broadside because you've not got the Star Wars and, and Star Trek styly. Uh, three-dimensional dogfights in in 40k it's if you start going up or down too much and change your plane that's where the demons lie so that's why they have broadsides they they really don't have three dimensions in star trek either other than in in chess and that's about it but if you want to do that high speed stuff you have to start using yeah stuff and that gets horribly complicated Mm -hmm. yeah i'm going to argue against that and say you read some more of aaron dinsky down the stuff there's a lot of space combat which does involve three dimensions it, it, certainly not in the role playing games, um, which is my main experience of it. 
Fair, but no, there are there are yeah. This is a galleon which has claws which you can grab onto other ships. And so oh, there's there's a bit of up and down, mm. but there's not, from my understanding, the full kind of three dimensional. Con- yeah, these are games that to be played on on a board, so you know they tend to be. You can't do the stuff that they, they can't do the stuff that they do in Star Trek, where they turn on the engines and suddenly uh, you're behind. They're behind them because they've used hyperspace. Mm. Because hyperspace rips a portal at the hell. Yeah. So you can't do it. Yeah, uh, I think there's a few alien races that can do that, which is why you have points everywhere. All you know, which is why races that don't have that have guns all over their ships, mm. because if a if a zippy space elf ship turns up, they can just go. We'll just fire all guns. We'll hit it. Mm-hmm. We'll waste waste ammo, but who cares? We're not dead, sort of thing. So um, skip. It, it, it's beautifully evocative. Yeah. They're doing great stuff. Um, so, I'm going to very briefly dive into the last two books. I'm just going to open up some notes. Oh, these ones you've got notes for? Yes, because <laughs> I like them. Um, so, um, Guy Healy wrote a book called Korax, Lord of Shadows, which is, right, okay, so does someone else want to explain the, the Primarchs of 40k? Back when the Emperor was ruling all of mankind, he created 20 beings, well, yeah, he created 20 beings to rule his, run his armies and generally help reconquer the galaxy. Nine of them turned against him, nine of them defended him, and two of them we don't talk about. One of them track record at all from no. there. He has, he has made a mistake. One of them who's defending him was called Korax. He was good at stealth and stuff. So yeah, so so Corax is meant to be the sneaky one, and what basically happens very early on in the the setting is he's got his bunch of sneaky mates. They're all really really good at stealth. One of his other friends tricks him on getting all these stealthy mates in one place at the same time, and um, they get bombed. They get bombed horribly. So he tries to rebuild his his mate of stealthy stealthy mates, and he gets betrayed, and they get bombed, and they get bombed horribly. So the guy who's lord of like stealth and subtle subtly and scouting operations. Uh, is the first person to be targeted by his enemies in every single time. So the history of Corex is essentially one of rubbish, if you see what I mean. He's not very good at it then, is he? Yeah. If he's the first one to be targeted, he's not very good at being sneaky. Well, to be fair, he's like ten foot tall and in battle armour. You can't be that sneaky if you're in ten foot tall. Yeah, that, that, that's going to be rolling with disadvantage. It is, it is. Yeah, he's got heavy armour on. It's not, it's not good. It's because he's a ranger rather than um, rather than stealth operations. There's an entirely different like family of space marines for stealth operations, and they immediately fought, uh, uh, join both sides because, of course, they do, uh, and then end up getting corrupted because one of the sides corrupts and warps your mind, so that doesn't work too, out too well for them. Uh, Corax Lord of Shadows is a novella. It's a very short novella. It's a very fun and rapid novella. Um, and what it does quite well, as far as I'm concerned, um, it's Guy Healy, and it tells the story of a hero in difficult circumstances. Um, they originally launched this as a as one of the kind of limited edition format beautiful books, and I liked that, and that was fun. Um, I'm very glad it's coming out in cheaper, easier to read. But yes, do you have an opinion there, Adam? No, you've been peering over the. Cover. No, it's, it's it's very pretty. It looks very nice. Um, 
There's not enough crow puns, is what I can say. Yeah, I mean, with a name like Corax, it, it, it's asking you to like, crow or raven or, you the, know, Corvid. The, I expect Corvid punning. In fairness, yeah. when they asked Gav Forbes to write one, he called it Nevermore. See, <laughs> that, that, that's what I'm talking that's about. That's the way forward. Yeah. yeah. Letting the side down. There's also not a crow on the cover, which I am to understand is very important in books. Well, if they get R.J. Barker to write a Warhammer 40,000 cover, they can write Corax, and again, it still won't have a crew on the cover. Um, Poor R.J. <laughs> Sorry, R.J. <laughs> we should buy him some stickers or something like that. Oh, God, but, yeah, that, would, that, would, that would make it Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I love the opening... It's January. Sorry. <laughs> I love the opening scene in Lord of Shadows where, essentially, uh, Rubutia Gilliman, who's meant to be, like, the perfect son... So he's the ultramarines, and he's very mm-hmm. he's very ordered, and he's very boring, and he's, he's very straight laced. And they're having some simulation fights with each other, uh, and Corax is just like, well, "That was a waste of time for me because I know exactly what you're about." And he's like, "I've learnt everything." He's just like, ah. <laughs> "Well, I'm very glad to have been been of service, but quite clearly, I've not used half my tricks on you, you arrogant." <laughs> and it's just a nice bit of banter between these two demigods, and it does paint them quite nicely as a demigod. Yeah. Even though he's a bit of a putz, mm-hmm. uh, to, to, to coin a phrase. Um, so if you're a fan of that sort of thing... All of the best demigods are a bit useless. They're the ones that we root for. Yeah. As a, as, like Guy Healy, I like Guy Healy's writing. And as a story that is essentially about a demigod and demigod nonsense, mm-hmm. it works really well. Yeah. Um, moving on to another one that has been out for a while. Um, this is Danny Ware. Uh, by Danny Ware, it's called The Blood of the Rules. Uh, Danny Ware is better known for writing the Echo Rising series, which is a sort of fantasy with lots of swearing. If you like Joe Abercrombie in that style, or you'll like her style of writing. Um, they've got another writer, the Sisters of Battle, who are the women in power armour, who are very faithful and loyal to the Emperor and very mm-hmm. religious, and they're kind of zealots. Uh, yeah. And it's called The Bloody Drawers, and it starts off with bloody murder, it ends with bloody murder, there's bloody murder all the way through. And the, the main characters get battered left, right and centre all the way through the story. And the difference between the space marines who are genetically modified have all the advantages, have all the privilege, have all the power and are male. And the sisters of battle who have who are doing exactly the same job but have and have decent kit but they don't have the the super enhancements. Yeah. Is that the sisters of battle still win but they get their heck kicked out of them every single time yeah and I, li- I, I like them more than I like Space Marines I like Sisters of Battle much more because it's like I I, I can appreciate yes you've, you've you've defeated evil but you've lost your arm it's the same reason why Superman's dull because yeah. you can just do it well there's no threat there's no danger there and even when there is threat or danger it's so contrived that nah really <laughs> whereas with the Sisters of Battle, that they are just people doing a hard job without yeah. any of that. You you know the stakes are high rather than you know it. Well, the, the, these are gods walking in monsters. The, the Sisters of Battle are, are more relatable. It's why They're I read really Batman. Like, yeah, it's why yeah. I like the Imperial Guard um, novel side of things rather than the Space Marine side of novel things because again, it's normal people that that are doing their best, and there are actual things at stake. They could die, and indeed, you know the. There's a high chance they will, whereas with space marines, it's like oh, okay, cool, whatever. Yeah, I couldn't imagine being a space marine. Yeah. Well, then again, I probably couldn't imagine being a space nun either. But still, it's uh... see, I don't want to be 
a space marine. I like reading yeah. stories about the space yeah. marines, but I don't want to have. The, I don't want to be this not human creature. Yeah, I sympathise more with the truth. And Dan Abnett is the guy who wrote the Guardians of the Galaxy comic book that that movie that you love is based on. Mm-hmm. Um, Dan Abnett wrote a whole bunch of series about the Imperial Guard, and it's mostly a soap opera. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There, there's a bit where someone marries someone else because someone else has amnesia, and then they remember halfway through a war with giant robots. And it's yeah. like, shoot you deaf in space, but, oh my God, he's sleeping with her. Um, it's, and, and, it's the cool bits at the start of Aliens, before everybody can go... Yeah, and the thing, but yeah. the Bloody the Rose is kind of a mix, like the, the Sisters of Battle are all the cool, punchy of Space Marines, mm-hmm. and all the humanity of Space Marines without any too much of the mushy stuff. Yeah. And that works very well with the novella, and it works because they're, meant, because they're nuns, they're dedicated to one, one thing, which is yeah. defending humanity. But they, but they don't have like they don't have these like mental devices and dumping their brains that make them resist fear, which is what the space marines have. Yeah, they just have faith. Uh, there's there's a scene in there where um, there's, there's there's a creature that's just gonna kill him, and she just starts singing because what else do you do? And you're just like, yes, go do it. You know? Personally, personally, I think if there is a scary situation in the book, I want the characters to be scared. Hmm. Because that's what I would be in that situation. It's just, you know, it kind of making books about these immortal gods means you can't really empathise as much. So, yeah, I like this much better. It's talking about books about immortal gods. Mm-hmm. So, uh, there's been a series called The Horus Heresy. Yes. Which was originally meant to be four, five books long. Mm-hmm. It's now at 53, 54. It got away from them a bit. It got away from them for yeah. a bit. And it's the story... At one point, there was an empire, emperor. He was basically a god. He was making humanity better. He was allowing humanity to conquer the stars. He was, like, genociding alien races, but, well... Well, they're aliens. But they're aliens. Yeah. And there's a whole thing about right-wing philosophy and the fact that the 40k is a parody and a reflection of human nature. And, well, we can go into that, but... Can we not? Yeah, um, that's, that's not. Yeah, that, that's a panel for a comic uh, for for a convention yeah. at some point, which yeah, yeah. I'd love to be on, but you know, or even watch. But um, maybe we'll wait until the producers Al, uh, producer Al is on, and we can talk about the you know, colonization in space or something. Yeah. So anyway, you have this massive, and it's meant to be a kind of epic space opera Greek tragedy thing where there was an emperor he has 20 sons two of them die and tra- disappear in tragic circumstances nine of, them, nine of them turn against him nine of them defend him they die one by one mm-hmm. and of the nine that turn against them they all get um, corrupted in some way yes and one of the early books is called The Flight of the Eisenstein which is the Death Guard which are a whole bunch of um a whole legion of space marines, yeah. led by a demigod called Motor- a demigod called Motorian, the Primarch yeah. Motorian, mm-hmm. and he is pragmatic, and he lives. He comes from a world that's always full of death, hence the name Motorian. Uh, the 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 one that's always angry is called Angron. It's not that complicated. Yeah, there's there's a lot of bad punning in the names, isn't there? <laughs> um, they're, they're unsubtle references, unsubtle. And by the time you so, but the very detective is the last horse heresy book. It's not the last part of the story. They're going to do a series called Siege of Terror, which they promise is only ten books long. Um, Place bets now. <laughs> Place bets now. But the the buried dagger uh, is the last book, and what it does is we meet a character called Garo, and Garo was a guy who in the Death Guard. He turns around and realizes that all his mates are evil. All his mates are about turning to the evil side, 
and he saves as many people as he can and he's a good guy. Mm-hmm. But he doesn't have... He's, he's without a legion. He's, he's essentially samurai because his boss is a bad guy. Mm-hmm. So the Emperor's best mate, a guy called Malkador, comes along and goes, do you want a job? And he's like, yeah, I want a job. I want to, I want to, I want to fight the Primarch, but I can't because it's just me. And he's like, go and do some, some cool missions for me. So the Garo series has been about yeah. Garo and a team of outcasts, essentially, running around, trying to save the 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 uh, Imperium of Man from itself, whilst facing evil and horror. And it's meant to be the start of the Imperial Faith, and all the bits and pieces are from the setting. Mm. Uh, there's a bunch of space paladins in the 40k setting called uh, Grey Knights, and this is meant to be sort of the origins of the Grey Knights, is where yeah. they start to yeah. come from. The Berry Dagger is essentially the fall of Mortorian, so it's where Mortorian stops being something that resembles a human being and starts becoming the Avatar of Death and finally turns to the forces of Hell. I've been calling them the forces of Hell rather than the forces of Chaos. chaos. It's just yeah. easier mm-hmm. to... You know, turns to the forces of Chaos and becomes this monster whilst Garo and Chums are desperately trying to stop the stuff from happening. Oh my goodness, it's thrilling as hell. I I was gripped. It took me about a day to read the entire thing. As an ending to a 50-odd book series, this is a page-turning thriller written by James Swallow, who's, like these days, he's a professional writer of gripping thrillers that you read in the airport, yeah. sort of thing. I was just... I had not read the entire... I had not read the entire series up to this point. It really didn't matter. I knew enough about the series to understand that this guy's important, this guy's important, this guy's not so important, and this guy's evil. Um, I was just like, page 10, page 10, page 10. Oh, look, there is a buried dagger. There is a dagger in it. It is buried. I don't really care. <laughs> um, it's lots of epic denouements and endings. And as a standalone thriller, it's, it would be confusing. As a thriller, from, as a thriller to, to be read by fans of the 40k or 30k Horvath Heresy settings, it's great. If you've been reading every single book, heaven help you, but if you've been reading every single book from the series, this is a fine ending. Yeah, a great capstone to a, a, a big arc. To a very big arc. And in theory, and this is where I bring it up, means that if you are going to Dublin 2019 and Irish Worldcon, uh, you have nomination rights. <laughs> so because this book comes out this year, that means you could nominate it for... Best Series Hugo Award in 2020. You could nominate the Horus Heresy anyway, this year, if you're going, if mm-hmm. you've got nomination rights. But in theory, you could nominate it for a Hugo Award. That's 50 book multi-part series. How the heck that works? Because it's <laughs> never been done before. <laughs> no one's ever... Now, like not Normally when they say series, they mean like one person. Yeah. But this is a series that's been written by... Like at least a dozen people at this point. If they do this, will the judges have to read fifty books? Well, the judges are the individual members of uh, anyone who goes. Anyone who's going. All right, so it's voting by. Okay. So yeah. anyone, anyone who's going to Dublin twenty nineteen, which mm-hmm. is myself and many many other people, yes. or anyone who's going to the one the Worldcon in New Zealand, yes. Just to update you, Worldcon is an international convention that goes around the world. It's about science fiction. There we go. You, you don't buy tickets; you buy memberships, which is basically a posh way of seeing tickets. Um, <laughs> yeah, but but part of your ticket gives you gives you voting rights essentially, so you can vote in the Hugo Awards, and the Hugo Awards are a big deal in that industry. Yeah. So yes, so in theory, they would all be nominated. Mm. So Jim Swallow could turn around and say, "I'm a Hugo nominated author or Hugo winning author." Yeah, 
I think Christian Dunn and Laurie Gordon, who have both written in that series, anyone who's written a short story in that series would also qualify because it's Bet's series. Yeah. I mean, it's a series consisting of novels, novellas, short stories, audio stories, comic strips. Yeah. I think there's at least there is, a board game. There's at least one graphic novel. There's, I'm not sure the board game would qualify it somehow. <laughs> but yes, so so all of that would be encompassed into that, that one nomination. And I don't know who would pick it up. But presumably they'd have to produce... Because if you get nominated, you get a pin. Mm. And like, by the way, you should nominate Brave New Words for, for Hugo Award as best fan cast. Because I'd quite like to go to the party. We don't really... We wouldn't really win. No, we wouldn't, but, we wouldn't but, win. We get a pin, wouldn't we? We get a pin, yeah. and we, we get to go to a really cool party yeah. for the losers because the losers get the party. The winners, like, well, they don't win the party; they won. Yeah, exactly. So I just remembered that. You remember that Sisters of Silence novella that they produced a while back? That would then be worthy of a Hugo. It's got no words in it. I, I, I've got a, a Horace Heresy notepad um, that they gave away free as a as a promotion thing, and I've always claimed that that's the Sisters of Silence uh, novelization. The Sisters of Silence, by the way, don't speak. And they released, as an April 1st gag, an audio drama written from a first-person perspective from a Sister of Silence. It was 50 minutes of nothing. <laughs> we've then claimed on this show that we've received the novelisation of it, which was a notebook. But yeah, yeah, exactly. But yeah, that could receive a Hugo Award. It's got no words in it, it's brilliant. <laughs> yeah, no, but there's no author. Is there no one author credits? Yeah, no, no one, no, no one's claimed responsibility. Dips. <laughs> <laughs> okay, no, drill no, on the basis that Mike, Mikey Nicholas Smith should receive a Hugo Award right for, okay. for a story with no words in it. I, I think we should do it. Uh, and on that absolute pile of nonsense, um, thank you very much for listening. You've been listening to Proof New Words. Um, uh, please uh, pop on our Instagram. We are Brave New Words on Instagram. Brave underscore new underscore words on Instagram. We are Radio Bookworm on Twitter. Give us a tweet. Um, we are. You can also find us via Starburst Magazine, which is probably how you found us. So thank you very much for Starburst Magazine. Um, and yeah, so um, does anyone have any words of wit to add? No. <laughs> okay. Rarely. Haven't so far. So. <laughs> so it's goodbye from me, Ed Fortune. Goodbye from me. And from for myself. Uh, and also from me. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.